Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nika Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, how to build businesses and wealth that would have sustained impact, not only over time, but also over space. And we have these conversations in an environment of authenticity, curiosity and vulnerability and this week i was joined by travis sherlin who is a financial advisor at keystone financial he works with clients of all ages and assists them with retirement and life planning and specializes in assisting high net worth clientele across the u.s he takes a lot of pride in giving people confidence whilst focusing on estate planning and sustaining intergenerational wealth he Also, financial therapy is a key part of his practice, and he prides himself in bringing heart into financial planning. We had an incredible conversation. Um, Travis comes with a unique perspective with the way he approaches his work, but also with the lens through which he sees his clients and he approaches how he helps them, um, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. So I'd encourage you to tune in. Enjoy and share the love, share this episode with a friend or or two, someone that you know that's navigating challenges in intergenerational wealth and business planning. Thank you so much and enjoy. Hi, Travis. Welcome to The Connected Generation. I'm so excited for our conversation. Hey, Nika. Nice to meet. Nice to see you and glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you are a family wealth advisor today, um, but I'm always intrigued in the evolution and the trajectory of people's just journey. Can you tell us more about how you got to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. So uh, my mother uh, has been in the financial services industry for about 40 years. Uh, She started at a wirehouse in the early 80s. Uh, got Rookie of the Year in the whole United States, was the first woman to ever receive that award. So uh, she was doing great things uh, in the company and uh, just didn't get treated very well. A uh, woman in finance in the 80s was pretty tough. So she left and she started her own company, went out on her own, uh, wanted to do what was best for her clients, what she believed was best and not necessarily what other people thought was best. For her clients. So she left, went out on her own, and uh, never looked back after that. So I grew up in a financial planning household, uh, my mother being an ad- a financial advisor. Um, I grew up in the office. My dad was a full time school teacher, so he was busy at school a lot. So I was uh, at the office with my brother and got to kind of grow up in the environment. I've always grown up around other financial advisors and people in the finance industry, grew up going to all the conferences, um, you know, got just kind of grew up in the community in itself. And uh, when I was 10 years old, told my mother I wanted to be a financial advisor and get into financial planning and never changed my mind. Uh, So it was kind of funny growing up all my coaches and everything like oh what do you guys want to do when you're older and like oh i want to play in the nfl i I want to be a financial advisor so that was uh that that was the path that i i kind of went on uh went to uh got a finance uh 
scholarship to go to finance school in Colorado. So I went to the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs and got a finance degree there. Uh, never thought I would come back to Omaha, fell in love with Colorado. I'm a very big outdoors person. So uh, had a job lined up in Denver, uh, was kind of going to go that route. Uh, wanted to buy out a gentleman's practice in Denver and, and just go uh, take my entrepreneurial spirit that way. And uh, the mom's called uh upon graduation and she said we're swamped uh your older brother and i need your help can you come help us for you know a year or so you can always hire someone in your place and and go start a practice in denver which was uh my plan so i moved back to omaha nebraska started helping her out uh got very involved in the business community and uh, i just fell in love with omaha and the in the business community and the community at large here and uh, went and got my MBA, CFP at Creighton, and uh, had a great professor there that referred me to a Kansas State PhD program um, and applied to that and got in and did uh, most of my research in uh, cross-cultural uh, finances, a lot of financial psychology, financial therapy, and uh so uh finish that and uh still a practitioner have been this entire time for about 10 years now and uh love the industry love the profession love researching i do a little adjunct teaching as well at creighton university and um, a couple other classes so that's a, a bit of a hobby is to give back to the youth and uh you know just want to help as many people as i can wow that's so incredible um what struck me was that um, you voluntarily chose financial services and it became this passion of yours. Can you elaborate how and why you think you, from a young age, when you were 12, when asked what you wanted to be, you knew then that you wanted to be a financial advisor. Was it looking up to your mom growing up? What, why do you think that was? I think it was because I saw the impact that she was making on the people around her. Uh, she started with you know, a lot of blue collar families, a lot of school teachers. She was a former school teacher. So between her and my dad, they had a lot of school teacher connections and she was starting a business and needed clients. So, you know, she went to who she knew and that was a lot of school teachers. Uh, she got a connection to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, had a lot of people from uh, employees from there and people in the Air Force. So, um, you know, started her practice there. And now, you know, 30, 40 years later, those people are extremely successful because they took uh, advantage of long-term compound interest, as we all know the power of. And, uh, you know, she changed those people's lives. And I got to see growing up, those people coming in, the gratitude that they showed, how grateful they were for everything that she'd done for them. And I just thought that was so cool, so rewarding. Uh, my whole life, I've always just wanted to help people. And this seems like a great way to be able to do it. And I, I never stopped believing that. And to this day, I stand by it. I think just an awesome profession and a great way to help people. So, you know, we're doing it for a bigger purpose. That's so powerful. And I love that message because quite often I feel like the wealth management industry has a really bad kind of image um, amongst particularly younger generation who see it as um, quite reckless, quite greedy, um, quite unethical. And here you are saying you chose financial services because you wanted to help people. How do you 
you're nodding your head like <laughs> as oh, I described yeah. <laughs> the common kind of misconceptions mm-hmm. about wealth management. When someone comes at you with those kind of myths, so to speak, how do you react? How do you reconcile that with your truth of financial services is helping people and you love the impact that it's making? For sure. And, and that answer is twofold. And first and foremost is there's a lot of discrepancy between what wealth management actually is and what uh, what we actually do on a day-to-day basis. Um, you have the high level people see from the outside, you're charging fees and commissions and you're not being honest with people and you're not doing what's in their best interest. And you've got some big firms that, you know, take, they recruit a lot of kids out of college and they have them sell life insurance and tell them their financial advisors, you know, so there's a lot of misconception and, and just misinformation. And I think that it's just such a young profession. Really, it's about 50 years old, which in the scheme of things is still pretty new. And I, I think we've got a long ways to go as a profession of where we need to take it. Um, we just got to keep weeding out the the bad firms, the, the bad, the people that are making a bad name for it, and then keep building the genuine firms, keep building the genuine advisors and people that come into the industry that want to help people. And once they come in and they see that, then I think that they're like, oh, this is what it really is. And then like me, they're in it for life. Um, one of our employees, uh, he, he's a, a accounting background and uh, has done some accounting for universities and been kind of in the in that side of things. And uh, he's worked with financial advisors for himself, uh, like with his own money throughout the years. And uh, he wanted to come in and uh, interview for a financial planning role as he's working on a CFP, wanted to do some accounting for us as well. And when I did his financial plan and went through everything with him, he was like, wow. He's like, I've never had an experience like that. He's like, I this is the place I want to work. You know, I want to be able to do that for people. I want to be able to help have that power, ask those questions, genuinely care about their whole big picture. Mm-hmm. And, and there's tons of firms out there that are like that. We're, we're not alone by any means. And I just think that awareness of, of getting people to realize that firms like ours and others exist that, you know, are in this really altruistically and we just want to get Mm. clients to their end goal and by doing that however the best of our ability we'll make money along the way you know Mm. we're not focused on money first we're focused on client goals first and then the money comes after that so uh and and like i said there's lots of great firms out there and really i would say that's probably why i teach uh is because i want to get that message out to students that you know there's a lot of good paths you can go in this industry Rather than what they see, they go to a university career fair and there's some big box, you know, shops mm. set up there that are telling them a lot of false promises that I don't necessarily agree with. So I'm free, very open to telling students uh, about where they should and shouldn't go and what to look for in firms, types of pay. And, and if I can get them in the door somewhere and help them get a job or help them with their resume I just want this industry to be great for a long period of time. And that's going to require a lot of young talents. So if we can train them now and point them in the right directions, I think we all should try our best to do so. 
Powerful, powerful. And you said you teach folks on like what to look for, what not to look for um, in terms of prospective um, young folks looking for jobs. I think this is equally applicable to us entrepreneurs um, building wealth when choosing financial advisors. It can feel it's overwhelming because there's so much choice, firstly, and then there's a feeling of who can I trust? Um, so I'd love for you to share more on how to, as a as a potential on the other side, as a potential client or sure. someone that's looking for a job, how do you decipher a, a financial planner that would be worthy of working with or working in? I think a referral always goes the longest way. I mean, our entire practice is built on referrals o- over the last 40 years. My whole personal practice is built on referrals. Um, it's hard to do marketing in this industry because like you said, it's like you put something out, someone sees it. It's like, well, how, who are we to trust them? Who are they? You know, unless you're actually talking with that person, um, I'd recommend interviewing, you know, several firms, several advisors and, and trust your gut. Or, you know, our instincts are extremely powerful. We need to trust that. Trust who you're comfortable with. And if you've got a referral to someone that someone that you trust is comfortable with, I think that's just as powerful. Um, so I think asking around uh, and getting solid referrals and maybe interviewing a couple people is a great place to start. Great. And you mentioned in terms of the industry will need younger talent, like diversity. Can you speak a little bit more on that? Because this is something that I I see as well. Like the industry does seem quite aged. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's funny because when I first started teaching, uh, it would have been in 2017, I believe. And the class that I taught in 2017 to the students that are coming through now, these 2021, 22-year-olds, and then also I have some grad students who so are some older, but amongst the really seniors of undergraduate age cohorts, that generation has already changed. Um, and, and things are changing pretty quick. I think the uh, Gen Z is now starting to really enter uh, the workforce. They're starting to graduate. And the way that they think is different. And they've been raised in a lot of different technologies with blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Um, if they did invest in it, some of them have gotten very large, very fast returns. Some of them lost money very quickly. Um, but I think that seeing a longer, slower, steady return over the course of one's life is not necessarily as attractive to, oh, or like, you know, a meme stock getting a thousand percent return. That's quick money. But um, I just think we need to educate that a lot of that is speculation. Uh, You know, there's, there's power behind blockchain technology. No one's denying it, but it's a very volatile, high risk asset class. And that needs to be acknowledged and explained properly. And the portfolios need to be diversified. Um, So as we have these new generations coming up, I think just being open and honest with them and explaining, you know, what the what the past has been, what the present is and what the future could be could involve a lot of different moving parts. But as a profession, we're just trying to help people get from A to B and and, uh, you know, excel and exceed all their goal expectations, how we do that and what we invest in might change. You know, who knows? In 20 years, maybe we are a predominantly portfolio of crypto. But mm-hmm. today, that's not the case. So it's like, we're not just going to like 
I think some people are too hard on some of the things that the younger generations believe in. Uh, I think mm. we just need to be a little bit more accepting, like, hey, that is a possibility, but right now this is what's best for people. And, you know, this is a really cool path where we can help people get to achieving their goals. And it's more holistic uh, than they might uh, see and or read in some places. But mm-hmm. I think I think it's really up to firms as well to get young talent. I think the old model of giving someone a stipend for three years and expecting them to survive on their own and fees and commissions is is obsolete. I think that it's not possible. Uh, the times have changed. Cold calling doesn't work like it used to in the 90s. Um, commissions aren't really a thing. So it takes more than three years to build a practice. I can tell you from experience, mm-hmm. the first three years are very, very difficult, especially if you're fresh out of college. So I think mm-hmm. firms need to be paying salary. Salary plus bonus uh, would be a better structure for a lot of these younger generations coming into these jobs because you get into a position for three years, you get a stipend, they pull the rug out from under you and you can't survive on your own. Like, well, that industry wasn't for me. And it's like they change jobs. They leave the industry altogether and they don't come back a lot Mm -hmm. of times because they have a bad taste from the perception of what they received in that one job. So I think as firms, we could do better, uh, better pay structures, salary, not pulling rugs out from under them, you know, really preparing them for a long term career rather than like, oh, you didn't make it in three years. This isn't for you. You know, Mm -hmm. so I, I think that that matters a lot. Mm. Well, definitely um you mentioned something about your helping clients get from a to b and you also mentioned a little bit earlier that you're focused on like focus on the client's goals first so can you talk me a little bit more about how you um help clients um firstly gain clarity on their goals and what you do with that yeah so I always jokingly tell clients before they come in, I always tell them, I'm going to rip your life apart <laughs> because you got to know everything. And we, we do. We're not shy. I mean, I will ask any question. I'm very blunt. Uh, and we tend to be. And we'll lay it all out on the table and then we'll put it back together. We'll say, OK, what is everything in your scenario? And some people are like, wow, I had no idea. Or like, I haven't even thought about that. Or I haven't even thought about, you know, putting this all together that way. And it's like, we want to know every piece of your life from your money to your expenses, to your personal life, to your goals, to aspirations and everything in between. Cause mm-hmm. we've, we've seen every scenario over and over again. Uh, we're not really surprised by anything anymore. So we kind of know how to piece it back together and what direction to put them on to get them on the right path. And that changes. It's always ever changing. And, uh, but from the initial side of it, just kind of getting it all out on the table and putting it all back together in a nice, clean plan that's goal oriented and uh, can get them on the right track. It's a lot of the feedback we get is, you know, it's very refreshing for them because they've never done that in their life. They've never had someone plan their life out for them like that and help them visualize what the end game can look like. A lot of people get caught up in the day to day where they're not so, you know, future oriented, because that's just how we're wired naturally as humans is a lot of us aren't futurists. For sure, for sure. And um, I wanted to go back a little bit because you spoke about how you're, you love research and um, you did a PhD in cross-cultural finances. Can you speak a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. So um, some of the most current research that I did uh, was some primary research. I developed a survey for my dissertation and I got some um, answers. Uh, I had filter questions so that I could get answers from people born outside of the United States. Um, got about 700 responses of those. Um, about 60% were outside of the United States, born outside of the United States. And what I did was I analyzed uh, some financial psychology research mixed with some cross-cultural research to find out if different cultures were looking at finances differently, if they were viewing um, the psychology of finances differently. And what it got broken down into was really three cultures. Uh, so traditional cross-cultural research will oftentimes break cultures down into Eastern cultures and Western cultures. Uh, often known as collectivistic and individualistic cultures. Um, and that, that was really developed by Hofstede in the 80s. And more recent research, uh, as of about the last decade, has started to break the Eastern into actually two different cultures. And they call that honor and face cultures. And so there's your individualistic cultures, which they call dignity cultures, and then your traditionally Eastern collectivistic are now honor and face. And so uh, really the difference is uh, face cultures tend to be more Eastern Asian, more settled, very hierarchical, uh, uh -huh. high, high chains of command and honor cultures tend to be less settled hierarchies, uh, more common in uh, countries in the Middle East. And uh, so in the I wanted to v uh, verify that these three cultures do exist and there is a reason to split it into three instead of the traditional two and mm -hmm. so what the research did was it did confirm that there is a difference uh it was worthwhile to split it into the three and then from a psychological standpoint uh the research found that honor cultures are really the most different from a, a, a money standpoint and money psychology standpoint as compared to the um the face and dignity cultures. So it was pretty cool research. Um, we're going to start submitting it to some journals and, and some mm. papers uh, recently, but that's, uh, you know, one example of the cross-cultural research, the type of stuff that we're doing is really, we just want to understand how cultures view finances differently. Um, I, I've spoken with financial people in the financial industry across the world, um, anywhere from South Africa to Europe to Korea and China and Australia, Canada. And I really wanted to get a feel of what some of these countries were doing. And really, the United States is pretty far ahead uh, when it comes to the, the financial planning field. But mm. I still think we have a lot of work to do. But as a lot of these other cultures start to implement financial planning into, you know, a lot of their just day to day, people start to invest, participate in markets in different cultures. It's important for practitioners across the board to understand how different cultures view money. Uh, mm. There needs to be the understanding that, you know, uh, it is money is very taboo in the world still. It's even mm. still taboo in the United States, although it's become less and less as of recently. But 
some people have a hard time discussing money. Some cultures don't discuss money between couples and spouses. So there's a lot of things mm. that needed to be taken into account, especially as we become a more globalized world that as a practitioner, you're likely to come across people from lots of different cultures as we have. And it might not be as easy to, or, or you might need different strategies to work with those clients than you're traditionally used to. So we just want to bring some research to the forefront that can say, hey, this is why we need to be cognizant of who we're working with and, and how we do so. That's really powerful, powerful work um, and research there. I'm really, really intrigued. In terms of the three different cultures, what were the kind of typical views of money? Yeah, so um, what we used was, uh, it's called the money script. So it breaks it down into money avoidance, people who are quite avoidant of money, uh, they think money can bring greed, and uh, they're often very frugal people. There's money vigilance, uh, people who are usually very overly uh, saving. Um, they're very cognizant of money. There's money status, people who believe that money buys status and power. And then there's money worship, people that just uh, comp compulsively obsess over money. And so these are psychological uh, money attitudes that were developed by some financial psychologists in the field. And what we found was actually that uh, face cultures tend to be more uh, money status oriented. So a lot of times in face cultures, um, the research would suggest that if you're mo more money status oriented, you're okay with spending money to, to buy power, to show your money. And with face cultures being so hierarchical, it, um, it it does make sense that it's okay. You know, if you're up here in the hierarchy, you're allowed to show that, you're allowed to spend your money, you're allowed, whereas some other cultures might see that as, you know, boasting. But in their culture, it's not seen that way. It's actually culturally acceptable. So, you know, it's what's viewed in one culture can be viewed differently in another culture. And it could be the same thing. You know, you could be money status in America or money status in China. And those could be two very different views of how society actually looks at that. That's really interesting. And then you mentioned also that money is still taboo all over the world. Um, and that in some cultures, couples don't discuss money. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, we still deal with it in the United States. The number one cause of divorce is finances. Um, so getting people, not just in the United States, but across the world to talk about money is a huge first step. I mean, having an open line of communication is key for any practitioner to be able to do their job properly. And knocking down those barriers and making it so it's not taboo is is paramount to accomplishing the work that we need to do like i said you have to lay it all out on the table and to do that you have to have a lot of trust and you have to build trust with those people and and some cultures it can be harder to build that trust and it can take longer um which is fine but practitioners just need to understand that process and and we've gone that with, through that with with families of different cultures that it has taken longer to build that trust and you know that's a process that we're completely okay with because you need to be completely comfortable with each other before you even start the the opening up and rebuilding process. And, and sometimes that takes time and, you know, different, some people like, all right, right away, I trust you, let's go. 
and other people mm. like, all right, let's talk through this for, you know, three, four, five months and have several meetings. And, you know, so it's all about comfort level. But um, I just think that it's important for practitioners to understand that different cultures do have different views about money. And we need to be accepting of all those different views. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder, did your um, research uncover much about gender um, across different cultures and views towards money or? Yeah. Yeah. In my specific research, I didn't do any analysis on it. I do have the data uh, of, I did ask uh, a binary male, female question. Um, And so that's in my data set with all the results that I have. That's something that we could pursue to analyze. Um, and there's actually quite a few extra questions in, in there that we threw in that we want to analyze from a cross-cultural perspective. So definitely something to consider in the future um, because there's a lot of great gender research out there about money um, and, and the both the good and the bad. I mean, there's the good side of, of who handles the finances and how they communicate that and what it does for families. And then the bad is, you know, things like financial infidelity, spouses that lie to each other about their spending and, and things Mm -hmm. like that. There's a lot of good research out there on that. Indeed. Indeed. And you were talking about how it's, it can be difficult for couples and for families to talk about money. Do you have any tips for families couples that are grappling with that on how they can start to break the ice absolutely absolutely and and i think uh the best first step is is just to plan a conversation around it you know plan a meeting plan a family meeting and and between spouses and couples i think that's an easier conversation to have like hey we need to sit down we need to have a meeting and really discuss this and iron through it and maybe we need to talk to somebody, maybe we need to talk to a professional about what we need to do moving forward. I think that's a little bit easier of a conversation to strike, uh, but a very important one. I think every couple should be having that conversation. I think where it gets trickier uh, from what we've seen is with families, especially some of our high net worth, some of the higher net worth families that, you know, uh, grandma and grandpa, they won't show their cards to the kids. Uh, they don't want the kids to know they, the grandkids aren't even in in a part of the conversation, uh, let alone the kids. And what we highly, highly, highly recommend is that they, they open up that book and they show their families and explain what the plan is, what's going to happen when they pass away. You know, what, what is their goals? What is, what is the grandparents goals? Cause you need to have those conversations while they're alive because, Mm -hmm. All too time, all too much do we see families get torn apart uh, from trusts and estates. And it's just, it's it's really no fun to watch. And you know that the parents or the grandparents or whatever generation would not have wanted that. And as practitioners, we need to be, you know, trying as much as we can to get them to have those conversations. It's not always successful. Uh, many times it is. And then all the generations feel a lot better after they have those conversations. So really just being able to uh, schedule a a non-biased meeting, a lot of times in a place that's, you know, for for a family, um, a neutral location, you know, something Mm -hmm. that's not going to be leaning towards or favoring anyone, just a neutral location where everyone can have an open conversation and, um, 
you know, there's lots of people who specialize in family dynamics and things like that who can help regulate those conversations. And um, it's it's just very important to get that ball rolling. And there's no rush. You can take your time with it. You can start small. But those conversations, as they get deeper and deeper, are going to be what really creates a, a successful longevity of, of family wealth. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, what just came to my mind is with couples, um, you've just got two individuals, right? Um, but in a multi-generational family, you've got so many more stakeholders who may have these completely different money scripts mm-hmm. or um, passions and ideas on what to do with the money. Um, how does one reconcile that like as a family member? Yeah. It's extremely difficult. And that's why, uh, you know, it's important to bring practitioners that are trained and versed and have seen a lot of those scenarios before, because like I said, there's not many surprises, you know, for us, we've kind of seen every situation and, you know, there'll always be different scenarios, but overall the big picture, we've probably already seen it. We've probably already dealt with it and we've learned what worked, what didn't. So a lot of times working with practitioners and and we have referrals too for, you know, if there's things that we feel like are out of our scope, we refer that in. We, we have a team of referrals that we work with families. So it's important to have, uh, you know, your financial team to have, you know, that core mindset that we're okay to work with everybody, but if we need someone, we can and add them to the team. But um, it, those dynamics and families, sometimes you do need to bring in several people to get get it right. And you got to lean on your practitioners and the trust that you give them to really open up and, and be accepting of that. And, it, and back to the cross-cultural, I mean, we see a lot of cross-cultural issues within families. I mean, grandpa, mm-hmm. uh, all two times we could see grandpa from a country immigrated to America, started a successful business, son ran it, made it bigger. Now grandson's coming in and, you know, they have the collectivistic honor culture mindset and grandson had, was born in America. He's got that very individualistic dignity mindset. And so he thinks his opinions are very powerful. He just got a great education. He's ready to come in and innovate and start sharing that information. And, dad and grandpa are like, whoa, 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 you haven't earned your place in the hierarchy to give us those opinions yet. And so mm-hmm. there's a there's a clash happening within that family that they think it's like, oh, we just don't get along because of our personalities. What's well, actually a cultural issue more so than yeah. a personality issue. And sometimes just recognizing things like that are very powerful within families and, and being aware of what's actually causing the problems at the root of the cause. That's a really helpful lens. I remember the first time we met, you, you spoke about that and I was I had a huge aha, like, yeah, there's a lot of cult, cross-cultural clashes in family enterprises that I serve and that I'm quite close to. Um, and it's not necessarily personality differences or communication styles. It's at its heart, it's a different kind of um, structure, so to speak, um, societal structure that and aspirations and motivations that they're moving towards so that's really helpful tool for families to know um, and to be able to navigate and identify that yes um, son is working with a more dignity oriented mindset whilst father might be working with the face kind of mindset 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Travis, this has been incredible. Like I've learned so, so much from you. Um, if anyone wants to get hold of you, how best can they reach you? Uh, LinkedIn is really good. Uh, Travis Sholin. Sholin spelled S-H-O-L-I-N. Or uh, just find us on our website. We're keystonefinancialservice.com. And uh, we're the only Sholins in the world, so pretty easy to find us. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i don't know if you've got any lasting words closing comments um before we, we yeah um just that for anyone listening you know encourage younger generations to to get involved and point them in the right direction it's our job uh to educate and to create lasting uh good wealth and, and solid foundations and families we got to keep educating the next generation so as long as we keep doing that, we'll uh, we'll create a beautiful society, and that's kind of our goal, and I think what all of us aspire to do. So, thank you so much for having me, Nika. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, thank you so much. Oh goodness, I loved that conversation. I love that. Um, you can hear it, and you can sense it, and you can feel it that he really, Travis, does really bring heart into financial planning, and is very much client centric and how to serve his his clients. I loved when he talked about money scripts and how money still remains this huge taboo across so many cultures around the world, and how we often come with very different money scripts and. Um, particularly when it comes to couples, right? Couples that are navigating financial planning, um, navigating generational transitions. And often these individuals may have completely different money scripts. And I found that quite interesting. Like, for instance, he was talking about money avoidant, money vigilant, money status and money worship. And I think it's really important, firstly, to reflect as an individual, which of these scripts may you hold? And secondly, how can you potentially with your um, spouse or your partner start to have authentic, vulnerable conversations on on money? Um, it's very important, particularly when we're thinking about crossing this generational bridge. Money is is a key part of, of that. And it's a very important factor for a lot of us. The second thing that I really loved was him looking at this lens um, through a very much a cross-cultural lens and speaking about how quite often in multi-generational families, people think that what's at play and the challenges that are at play are generational challenges, but quite often what's at play are actually cross-cultural clashes and cultural um, a lack of sensitivity and understanding of the cultural influences within a family household. And I think this is particularly important um, because we're seeing that many next gens, many rising gens are bicultural. So they may have been raised in their countries of origin, but often they're sent abroad to the West for secondary or university education. And many choose to settle and remain in the West or some go back to their country of origin. But despite this choice of location, many next gens that I've had the privilege of serving I see that they're straddling two contrasting cultures, uh, quite often a collectivist, a lot of my clients are from Africa or the Middle East, um, a collectivist culture, and then also on the other side, navigating this pull towards an individualistic 
Western one. And it's really important for us to educate ourselves on these clashes and how um, essentially the underpins and the very foundations of these cultures and how um, being bicultural can result in clashes within the multi-generational household and affect the succession and the um, transition, the legacy planning process. I thought that was really, really um, absolutely fascinating. As always, thank you so, so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless.